0: Another time, another place. The Bomb Squad, a cabal of Z list internet movie talkers, has retired to Toronto, a remote Canadian city famous for its unique animation. It is here that they lay their plans for their comeback, a great and final movie night that will secure their immortality. High in the bluffs adjacent to Toronto, the Bomb Squad's computers work at deciphering an ancient satanic algorithm which could unlock a doorway between their world and a larger audience, while the Bomb Squad themselves search for the last crucial component, a very special movie. Hello, and welcome to Bomb Squad Movie Night. I'm the beauty, Ethan Hawker, and with me I have...
1: I'm the Beast. Hi, I am the Beast, a.k.a. Special Agent Quailu.
0: And today we'll be featuring a very special performance by...
2: Don! Hello! Three timers! Closed. Three timers! Three timers. Three timers!
0: And today we'll be discussing Nelvana's 1983 post-apocalyptic furry-adjacent musical SF masterpiece, <laughs> Rock and Rule. Want a beer. But before we dive in, I just wanted to offer a brief spot for Dawn to talk a bit about her work for those who might have missed her previous two appearances on the show with Animal World and the Utana film *Adolescence of Utina*.
2: Hi, my name is Dawn. I am the host of the Anime Nostalgia Podcast, where I talk about anime, manga, and fandom history from before the 2000s. You know, before the internet ruled our lives. So, if you like cool old anime and manga and fandom shit, you can check me out at Anime Nostalgia Podcast pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts.
0: Yeah, no, it's a great show. Definitely check it out. Uh, they also have wonderful merchandise like that delightful tank top that Tim Sullivan is wearing.
2: Heck yeah. You can find that in my tea Public shop.
0: There's a lot of really good stuff there. I love that makima pudding design you did, too.
2: Oh, really yeah, welcome. the makima based off of the Pekochen from the milky candy and such.
0: But enough about delicious sweet candies and Chainsaw Man. Uh, we're talking about obscure things that nobody knows about because we don't like SEO.
2: Give me just one good
3: reason why you guys should finish. How about this? Shut the fuck up! Okay! (laughs) Launching directly into
0: the discussion of Rock and Rule, I want to know your guys' history with slash expectations for Rock and Rule. Starting us off, Tim, would you like to go?
1: So I hadn't seen the movie before. I hadn't even heard of it until you had put it on the schedule. But recently, uh, this past April, the local genre film screening program Late Night Grindhouse did a double feature of Heavy Metal and Mandy, And uh, when they do their screenings, they like to do little like pre-roll things that have like clips and trailers that sort of pertain to the movies they're talking about. So for Heavy Metal, they played a couple of trailers that were mostly like Ralph Bakshi Films. Like, they did Heavy Traffic, Fire and Ice. I think they did American Pop. You would think they would do American Pop. But they also included the trailer for Rock and Roll. And knowing that we were about to talk about that, just, like, watching the trailer for the first time, I was like, okay, this looks like my jam. This looks like something I'd be into.
2: You guys are totally stoned! Oh, no! Uh, look, look out! Oh, we're not gonna die! Oh,
0: oh yes, we are! Hell yeah. That double feature <laughs> looked tremendous. If I wasn't busy with the anime convention at the time, I, I would have definitely caught it. Heavy Metal, what a film, what a picture.
1: They're, I guess, trying to do Mandy double features every April with a different movie. So I'm interested to see what they pair it with next time.
0: Maybe they'll show it with Rock and Roll next year. Ooh, yeah. Moving on, Austin, expectations for slash history with Rock and Rule.
3: History-wise, man, I've never seen Rock and Rule before now, just like Tim hadn't even heard of it. I somehow missed the three-year period where Nelvana had it up on YouTube on the Retro Rerun channel, just my luck.
2: Boss, um, can, can can you tell the difference between good and evil? <sighs>
3: I was a little worried going into this, but most of that's, like, personal bias. I figured it was one of those movies about, like, the power of rock and roll. And and those could be a real drag sometimes if it's just cool music videos cobbled together without enough plot, but I do like adult animation a lot, so when I read on Wikipedia that this narrowly technically classifies as an adult animation, my head was preemptively filled with all kinds of like subversive, Ralph Bakshi, X-rated images, so I was kind of expecting heavy metal with goofy movie designs for the characters. I <laughs> know how silly all of this sounds in hindsight, but those were my initial expectations going in.
0: No, I, I think it's uh, it's got a certain goofy movie vibe throughout you know funny animal sort of characters aside the emphasis on power in power line and the hometown power plant the way that sort of culminates like some of the characters i stretch kind of reminds me of the polly shore character from a goofy movie dizzy reminds me a bit of pj max's friend there, there are parallels
3: i was expecting ralph bakshi and i got don bluth
0: And I think that's fair. I I would say this is, I don't know, not quite up to, like, heavy metal, but a bit more mature than even, like, uh, well, mature maybe. More adult content, say, than something like The Secret of Nim.
3: I'm sorry,
2: dick nose.
0: What? Moving along. Dawn your history with expectations for this wonderful film.
2: This is me doing my Mr. Burns fingers going excellent, hearing that (laughs) you've never seen it before. (laughs) Because I'm always excited when more people watch this movie, because it's a favorite of mine. I wouldn't call it like a guilty pleasure, but it's one that like I really enjoy this movie and when people hear me talk about it, they're like, really? What? (laughs) But when I was a kid, I saw this movie way too young. Most of the stuff went way over my head when it came to the like adult humor and stuff in here. I can't remember if I rented this Or if I saw it on cable, either wouldn't surprise me because back in the 80s, my mom was briefly the manager of a mom and pop video store. So I kind of had free reign to just rent whatever. And since this looked like a cartoon, (laughs) my parents would have probably been like, yeah, sure, whatever. Because for the first like 10 years of my life, I was an only child. So they just were like, oh, she can take care of herself. It's fine. But for years, I would try to tell people about this movie because I could not remember what it was called for the longest time because I think I only saw it once. And so for a while I was convinced I had this fever dream. Nobody I'd known back then had heard about this movie. They were like, you're crazy because everyone was like, oh, it's American pop, right? And I was like, no, I've seen American pop. This is not the same thing. And then I was at a friend's house in like, I think the early 2000s and she was like, oh man, I just recently found out they put one of my favorite old movies on DVD. You've got to watch it because nobody else Else i know has seen this movie and she put in rock and rule and at first i was like i think i know this and then by like halfway into the movie i was like i definitely know this oh my god that's the movie that's the movie and i was so excited about it that she burned me a copy of the dvd and i took it home and i watched it like five more times yes And then uh, when the Blu-ray came out, my partner actually bought me the Blu-ray as a, I can't remember if it was a birthday gift or an anniversary gift, but either way, they knew I really liked it. And I was the one who showed them the movie. I'm
0: sure you're into reaching of consciousness.
2: Yeah, we're into that kind of stuff. It's all we ever do. And so I'm always really excited when people who have never heard of the movie see it for the first time. Cause I try to tell them as little as possible about it. And I'm just like, no, you just got to watch this movie. <laughs> it's wild. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, I mean, spreading it uh, like, like it's a disease. Uh, but yeah, no, uh, spreading the good word of rock and roll is uh, good and cool, IMO, very important. I'm really hoping, like it's not very accessible at all right now. I'm hoping that changes very soon. Like it's not even streaming anywhere. The, the, the home video releases are out of print and very, very expensive.
2: Yeah, I was just uh, curious earlier today and I went up on eBay and I looked it up and most people are selling it for about $200.
0: I mean, it's, it's a good release. It's not that good of a release. Um, No.
1: (laughs) And like, I was even checking, I don't think it's even available for like digital rental either. So like you can't even Mm -mm. watch it legally without going upwards of $200.
0: Yeah, so hopefully it gets rescued soon. We, we'll we see. I know, yeah, the Kino just did that release of Fritz the Cat after, you know, 20 years of it just being stuck on a crummy DVD. So this one they just is already really good. You can just reprint it, literally. Speaking of the home video release, that's kind of my start. Uh, this, this one, it's one of those films that, like, the, the backstory behind me, seeing it isn't too over the moon, but it's just so formative in its way. It was, like, right when I was getting into that period in high school, when I was getting into animation outside of, uh, Bakshi's filmography and Japanese animation in particular. So I'd, I'd seen Heavy Metal like when I was in like late middle school, and then at one point I was reading up on it and because of the usual Carl Masick-Robotech connection to Heavy Metal. Uh, I was reading Carl uh, Masick's Heavy Metal book. I've been researching some stuff about that, and that led me to discover this Heavy Metal-adjacent film because Nelvana had been approached to make a Heavy Metal film, uh, and they passed on it, obviously, because they were working on their own project so I sought it out. Like, I'd seen the trailer on YouTube and I'm like, oh, this looks like it rules. So, <laughs> I I ordered a copy of the Blu-ray back when it was, you know, even remotely affordable. What are you doing in a public fountain? We give up, quad. What are we doing in a public fountain? Okay, wise guys. And, appropriately enough, in terms of, you know, this movie feeling like a fever dream, the first time I watched it, like, when it arrived, I had, like, a 102 degree fever, but it was uh, ideal conditions to watch this film for the first time, I suppose. I had <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) home from school that day. I would just pop this in, and like, fading in and out of consciousness. And I loved it. It was great. It made me feel better. Uh, And that's all you can ask of a movie. And I think I watched it again, because it's a very easy movie to do that with. It's very, it's like 77 minutes long. That's with credits. And I kind of fell in love with it. It's one of those ones where it's like, oh yeah! Like, something outside of the Disney tradition. Like, you can kind of toe that line in the same way, like, of like Wizards, like The Last Unicorn, where you can do something. This is, you know, maybe not as mature as The Last Unicorn, but I think it's more developed than something like Wizards, much as I love wizards both you know visually and it's, its narrative content uh, and it's like oh yeah you can do cool stuff outside of Japanese animation in the realms of science fiction and fantasy and that's that's great but time has separated us is this like wizards where maybe my view is soured on it a little bit more do I still love it a lot uh, definitely that one actually uh, but I'll get into it a bit more as we go into our overall thoughts on uh, rock and rule Tim would you like to start us off
1: uh, I had a great time watching this. I think it's very charming, it's very endearing, it's brimming with style. Maybe not the sharpest script in the world, but it's such a fun time that that doesn't really matter. There's some really cool, surreal imagery that I really enjoy. One of the elements in particular that I really enjoyed is I really like how they kind of built Angel's character. I think that she has a sort of agency that you don't really see in too many female characters in like animated stuff at that time.
2: I guess you're not coming in.
1: I guess you're right.
2: Shoot yourself.
1: Like I like how when they're doing that first performance at the beginning she's just very firm about, uh, and then I get my song after you do yours and then she does her song and uh, it rules. Just throughout the movie she continues to like be this very realized character and I got a little nervous towards the end when she started to get into sort of what seemed like damsel in distress situation territory, but then they saved it by uh, having her sing the song at the end and ultimately save the day just a real fun time Uh, i'll talk more about it when we get into the animation side of it
0: but i enjoyed what i watched back to you Ethan. yeah no i think that's a particularly good point vis-a-vis angels agency i think that's uh, as much as she is sort of taken in by mock there's a sense that she is despite that the least hapless of of the band Mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of ways
2: she's definitely one of the smartest Chief Inspector Quailude, hometown police.
0: These are scientists. Hey, this is a tuna fishing license. Yeah, and just the way she, like, bounces off people and kind of tries to come up with plans, like, the way she, like, kind of uses her sexuality, so to speak, but is still clearly uncomfortable doing it with mock. I think that's a fairly nuanced way of depicting that, um, which is really cool and interesting, particularly for an animated film and not doing it in such an overstated, like, like something like heavy metal or something, where it's, you know, bikini babes in hyper-violent situations and that sort of thing, or even, like, fire and ice, you know.
2: She's cool and sexy without being, like super sexualized for most of the movie Mm.
0: yeah yeah it's basically just really that ending outfit that she's sort of forced into by mock anyways um and even that's relatively tasteful it's like a little bit of side boob
2: it's it's not too demeaning it's it's not a deal breaker if you're like you know watching the movie and like you're like all of a sudden like ah of course they have to put her in this it's like "Eh, it's fine
0: yeah she's she's not eleanor in wizards basically (laughs) oh lord But no, Austin, your overall thoughts on the film.
3: It's so funky giving thoughts on this right now because the rock fad has 100% died out. But there's 80s nostalgia now. Lots of kids who grew up watching like Secret of Nim on VHS, Great Mouse Detective... North American, like, cell-animated films that make everything produced in Tomb Boom look like microwave dog shit. So that era of rock and roll dominance is gone, but the nostalgia for the 1980s pre-CGI cell animation sort of uh, compensates for that and gives this movie a huge boost. Personally, I'm, like, 28 years old, and I was raised on the music the most suburban St. Louis kids were. Butt Rock from our local radio station, (laughs) KG95. So watching the um, kind of obnoxious opening credits, which are optically very impressive, but kind of annoying in a sensory way. I was seeing the list of bands featured one by one. And I swear that video of Vince McMahon auditioning assistants from 2002 (laughs) that turned into a meme. That was my face as the credits rolled. I couldn't believe it. Cheap Trick, Debbie Harry, Lou fucking Reed, Iggy Pop, Earth, Wind and Fire. I could not believe my eyes. Mm -hmm. But man, to quote Nelvana's prototype for this movie, uh, The Devil and Daniel Mouse, inspiration may be free, but it's definitely not a faucet you can turn on where hit songs come out. While the instrumentation and vocals are great for almost everybody, uh, the songwriting is really lackluster compared to the hits that I associate with most of those acts. So that's like half the movie's gimmick right there. The music, it sounds groovy, especially every time Debbie Harry sings and the Earth, mm-hmm. and Fire song, but it's not very catchy sometimes. So, like, the other half, the characters and the plot and stuff, how'd that shape up? That part of the movie really did capture the certain like, fucked up, messy magic of the 80s, pre-Disney Renaissance animated films. All the highlights of this film that make it remarkable are tied almost exclusively to the animation, and like Tim said, that's a later question. But the plot, the voice acting, uh, the way the characters behave, it's very, like, rough around the edges, in a way that sort of matches the appeal of cell animated films in general, and they're like, dinginess Angel and Omar, they act like actual real life musicians. They're flawed people who say unimpressive, really normal shit that you'd expect from people in a local band.
0: Perhaps we should invite Omar up for a spell. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
3: Uh, which is bizarre, because every other character in this movie acts more like an average cartoon archetype, but then there's Mock, the standout, <laughs> and he is a magnetic kind of villain, and a really funny parody of huge rock stars like Mick Jagger, David Bowie, and Iggy Pop. The whole thing's like an hour and 17 minutes, like you guys said, and it's clearly... The product of an unusual amount of work from a decade that produced a certain special type of animation we're probably never going to see again. Many have stated in interviews that the, like, writing process was all over the place and they were constantly revising the plot points making this. And that messiness does permeate the film. But Jesus Christ, there is so much ambition present here uh, from, like, every technical department that it absolutely deserves to be way more popular than it is. If I could compare it to anything to, like, make my final point, I'd compare it to that Tarsem Singh movie, The Fall, from 2006. (gasps) Yeah. While it's messy, it's, like, not outright bad most of the time, and some parts of it are as great as anything from, like, your favorite Don Bluth movie. But the way it looks and the effort it took to put together justifies its perpetual existence and importance in my book. It's a beautiful, deeply weird movie from a beautiful, deeply weird decade. And I liked it a lot.
0: That's completely <laughs> fair. I think it's it's just this idiosyncratic thing that is so of its time, uh, a little outdated even for its time in terms of like some of the acts they chose. Uh, like, why is Lou Reed in this movie? Uh, Lou, Lou Reed had to have been like a, like a fifth or sixth pick or something. Like, we couldn't get Bowie, we couldn't get. But it's so weird to have Lou Reed be your glam rocker.
2: Well, they did start this project in like '78, I think. It was like oh, three and a half years in production. Some of the acts were popular
3: when it started, and then nothing yeah. when it ended.
0: I think, yeah, this is a film that like has a lot of good parts, but its technical merits are what you will want to dive into, which we shall. But uh, Dawn, your overall thoughts on the film.
2: I think it's just one of those things where like, on paper, it shouldn't work, but in execution, it's executed so well that you just can't help but love it. Especially because when you watch it and you like read about the production or you listen to the commentaries or watch the making of stuff, you can see just how much love and care and work went into this movie. It reminds me of like how long it took to make Akira. <laughs> and how (laughs) you can tell that it took so long because they were just working so hard on it. The final product might not be the most coherent thing ever but it's really fun to watch and it's just like almost every scene you can find something new every time. It really rewards you with multiple rewatches. What did
0: you think of my last album?
2: I loved it. I bought it too. My gerbil uses it for a room divider. And I would argue that the music while it's not winning any awards, I've always thought it was like super catchy. I'm one of those people that's like, I would kill for them to put an official release of the soundtrack out because I love pretty much every single one of the main songs in this movie. It used to be, I had a bunch of rips of the audio of the music on my iPod. That's how long ago <laughs> we're talking. Yeah. But uh, I I have a playlist of all of the main songs on YouTube that I have saved and I'll go and I'll re-listen to them especially considering they finally found some of the original audio mixes for the songs like I think it was in 2015 and they put them on YouTube and so like now we can actually listen to like the full versions of like Angel's song and the Incantation song and and all those other ones that before if I wanted to listen to them I'd have to listen to dialogue from the movie over them <laughs> like a barbarian. <laughs> it's just one of those movies that I really love and it mixes a lot of things from that time that I really love and are really nostalgic to me like Austin brought up The Secret of Nim I love The Secret of Nim. Mm-hmm. It's so good and this would definitely be a great like double feature with the secret of nim here's the children's version and here's the adult version <laughs> uh, but i think that was something else that like really appealed to me when i first saw it as a kid because it felt darker than like the stuff that i was normally watching and like oh they swear in this movie oh my god you know
1: so get off my back oh shit
2: there's also things that I kind of associate it with that aren't animation. Like, I associate this movie in the same kind of genre as, like, Labyrinth, where Mm. it's, like, big musicians in a small production that didn't do very well. There's an evil dude that's, like kind of scary but also kind of hot and he wants the girl and the girl's like no and as a young girl I was like what are you crazy (laughs) Uh, but like that kind of thing so like it's one of those things where I know it has problems and I recognize that but also it's one of those like really nostalgic and comfort sort of movies to me which some people find weird because they're like this is a fucking weird movie Don and I'm like yeah isn't it great
0: (laughs) And, and regarding the music it's insane this movie's called Rock and Rule and it didn't have a score album there was no official soundtrack album the only yeah. way they were able to recover like Angel Song and stuff was because they found there was a cassette, cassette that was sent out to critics yep. yeah and it doesn't mm-hmm. even include the, the finale song Send Love Through um, and more importantly Hot Dogs and Sushi are not on that cassette uh, <laughs> I and that's a tragedy
2: so sad I mean I know they just like made that up because they needed something but like it's a funny little song
0: I love Hot Dogs and Sushi it's like- <laughs> like future punk for teeny boppers uh perfectly yeah. like that's it's exactly what it needs to be
2: and i would be remiss if i didn't bring up the fact that angel's voice is susan roman And Susan Roman is the deke dub of Sailor Jupiter in Sailor Moon. Oh, no. (laughs) Yep, yep. So that brings it full circle to more things that I love in my life.
0: I love Susan Roman's performance as Jupiter, too. Like, that's sort of, like, the perfect English-language Jupiter in my mind, and all of her incredibly good reads.
1: What's the deal? She can't be Sailor Moon. That's my job. She She can't. She can't. She can't.
0: Just spat out as one really solid <laughs> chunk. I feel like it's nice getting to hear her in a role where, you know, they clearly weren't producing something for, like, television and it was like, we got one read and then uh, you're done. Like, they could just go through it a bunch because she's a really good actress, actually.
2: She is! And for my partner, I'll also throw in that she was also the English voice of Rock in the Mega Man Legends video games.
0: Yeah, yeah, she played Legends two. What a good game! And she played the the mayor in Legends one. But uh, my own overall thoughts on Rock and Rule is uh, that Rock and Rule rocks, but also rules. Do that bit again. Um, <laughs> okay, you're just nervous. Take a deep breath. Hey, why? I'm not nervous! I'm scared! It's not a film without its issues. Uh, It's protracted production beginning as Drats in 1978, and the organic development method of storyboarding sequences while scripting with a team of young, pretty raw talent uh, definitely leaves its mark on the finished product, I think. But the flip side of that is that you get a really inventive film, uh, full to the brim with energy. Rock and roll is replete with blink-and-you'll-miss-it world-building touches, like when the car goes out of control and they go down and there's like two lovers on a street corner and the guy dies in onto her and like accidentally gropes her and she slaps him. I missed that. Like I, I really honed in on that during my latest set of rewatches. Uh, there's always something new that you're going to pick up on there. It's just a super unique combination of the sort of naive fairy story that Nelvana had been making in the space of television specials. Uh, you know, it's Devil and Daniel Mouse imbued with the uh, science fiction trappings of like Romeo and Juliet, but also heavy metal and wizards. It's all the things I love, uh, pretty much. But with a big budget. It's endlessly clotable, too. I really like the characters. Like, you don't get to see a lot of them, but they're just, like, very charming and characters you can really glom onto despite that.
1: So you wanna play rough, eh? oh. That's what I was afraid of these hands are lethal
2: weapons I could paralyze you
0: it leaves you wanting more with them and I think that's the best thing an animated film driven by a cast like this can do I think I watched this movie like six or seven times in preparing for this recording and I never got tired of it I think that's a testament to just how remarkable it is even if it's that short you know seven or eight viewings is still a lot of viewings <laughs> but no I think it's just a tremendous movie uh, but now let's go into the big question the one you're here for folks uh, thoughts on this film's animation and visual design once again, we're just going to go in order today. Tim, would you like to start us off?
1: Yeah, I, I liked uh, the animation quite a bit. I think it has a lot of really unique style. Like, it's sort of this perfect blend of like Bakshi stylings with like Renaissance era Disney stylings. And it doesn't feel like awkward at all like it goes together so perfectly and uh, kind of what I was alluding to there's a lot of like really cool surreal imagery like particularly in that scene where Doc is talking to Angel and it like keeps morphing like the bit where he's the butterfly and then they go into the grid there's just like all of this crazy stuff happening it's just a very creative movie and the animation is absolutely a huge part of what makes it so creative and uh, so enjoyable. Yeah, animation good in a nutshell. Back to you, Ethan.
0: Hell yeah! No, I, I completely agree. It's such an inventive movie, um, and uh, it's an animator-driven film. You know, uh, the director Clive Smith was himself an artist too, um, mm-hmm. and I think that very much shows. Uh, he's he's clearly not qu- so world-weary as like a Ralph Bakshi, um, or so controlling. I feel like it's it's a film where you can see the individual animators' contributions in the narrative as much as in like little quirks of animation. You know, as they were also contributing storyboards to this. It feels really collaborative, uh, but not as sanitized. In the same way, you know, a lot of Disney films are. We're ultimately, you know, very collaborative. A lot of people mm. throwing things into the stew, but you know, that it kind of gets processed through the, the marketing pipeline a bit more over there. Um, and here, that feels like there's less of that.
2: Yeah. If you if you listen to the commentary, Clive was talking about how each of the characters actually had a dedicated animator for them, mm-hmm. and so you'd be animating a scene where it was like a bunch of different characters in one scene, but it was multiple different people animating each character in different rooms and so they would have to like come by and talk to each other and collaborate on like what character was doing what thing in each scene but i think that was really cool because not only do you get like the really precise animation of like one animator per one character but then you also get like you said the collaboration where everyone gets together and they're like okay we gotta work together to get this to flow nicely, and they did a really good job on that.
0: Absolutely, particularly in a lot of shots that have like a lot of different elements and that sort of thing interacting together with that that multiplane. But Austin, thoughts on the film's visuals?
3: Best in-betweeners in the business! Uh, I, I think whoever was the voice of Mox computer, I think that she held an acting class that all the animators were made to take by the director so that they could learn to, you know, act out their scenes in real life and thus be able to animate their scenes better. There was a lot of cool care put into this. Ah, yes, the most remarkable thing about the movie. That's how good the animation is. It even outshines all those famous musicians. These folks went fucking ham with their mechanical concepts animation stand and their Elecon optical printer. The first time I saw the Armageddon key, I thought it was a 3D object that was textured with binary code. And texturing a 3D object for the resolution of 35 millimeter film was fucking bananas back in 83. But. No, lots of streaking and, like, slit-scan effects. Just camera exposure tricks assisted with computers. Mach's Triumph hologram sequence particularly wouldn't have worked as well before the time-intensive streak process was applied. But damn, it looks amazing after the fact. They do have actual CGI wireframes in here, too, on occasion, which is tremendously extra for an independent animated film from the early 80s. Speaking of computers, they actually had a multi-plane camera that was hooked up to a computer that had a video monitor so you could preview the motion-controlled camera moves. Dennis Brown really pulled the fucking rabbit out of his hat on that one, damn. On to the actual cartoons themselves, though. This is the most noticeable example of animators coming out in their characters I've ever seen, Anne Marie Bardwell made Angel feel like a real person. Frank Nissen mm-hmm. gave Omar a really exaggerated, shitty rock and roll guy essence that was so <laughs> distinctly James Dean and, and Robin Budd deserves an Oscar just for mocks Lips uh, Then there's the Beast The Beast! Jesus Christ! This whole movie's building up to it. The demon who shows up at the end to kill everybody. They had a team called the Beast Renderers who drew that thing with colored pencils and wax crayons to give it this alien texture. It's constantly evolving, often through like partial exposure tricks. And it was somewhat inspired by the Taffy Monster from the 1977 Raggedy Ann film. I think it's called The Greedy, maybe. Uh, They did an alpha Hmm. map on Codolith film, and put footage inside the alphabet of cow brains being jiggled around on a motion control rig. I mean, they really went fucking nuts, making the beast live up to the hype. And there's so much more, but we've got a time limit here. So one last shout out to the unsung hero of this film, Mike Merrill, who did the animation for The Uncle Mikey Show. Intentionally bad animation wasn't even close to being a fad yet, and yet here it is in this movie, glorious as hell. Please, If you're a fan of animation, you've got to see Rock and Roll. For a movie that flopped, there is a surprising amount of material about exactly how it was made. I didn't know what the fucking aerial image was before this. I didn't know what synexing was. I especially didn't know what Codalith film was. But Rock and Roll was made by a bunch of young, scrappy people who were trying to produce the best thing possible, and it's very rewarding to hear their stories about producing the film.
0: Absolutely. There's so much, so much here. Like, just Ooh. visual effects stuff. Like, the the way they use, like, actual plants uh, for the scene in <laughs> Mox Garden. And it's it <laughs> looks genuinely quite good. Like, they look painterly in the way they're lit.
3: What is it? They use spun glass from the inside of fish filters to make the clouds. And they keep cutting to that one aerial shot of the city because it took the artists so long to make it. They're like, well, we might as well get use out of this. And, uh, you know, for a lot of the multiplaning shots over Town, they keep going back to the same image, which was still a difficult process because they had to motion control, like, another pass for the lights and cars over it. But they keep going back to that painting.
2: Didn't they say it took him, like, six weeks to paint it, and it was, like, huge? Like, they said it was, like, like five feet long or something like that?
0: Yeah, massive. And not only they have to, they created the model cars, and then they would also have to create, like, lights to represent headlights for other vehicles, and they'd have to track them on top. Of it while managing all the separate layers, while also moving the lights so that they didn't get stuck and like start going through buildings and mm-hmm. stuff, which is such a creative way of handling that. Or like just the model work, the fact that all the vehicles were done, done using like reference footage of actual models that are hand painted and lined. It feels like golden age kind of Disney stuff in terms of the innovations of, of production processes and how they're working with multiplane and that sort of thing. Like like the overhead shots give me this. This might be an exaggeration. In some people's eyes but it really gives me like the vibes of like pinocchio like that famous multiplane shot of, of going into the town mm. um or like the, all the effects work on monstro in that film mm-hmm. like it, it feels like it's really hearkening back to something that we'd we'd lost for decades but i'm, I'm gushing i'm going to go on for too long god <laughs> your thoughts on the f- look of this movie uh,
2: the look of this movie is so good because it has just the right balance of being like old but futuristic so it's got like the perfect balance of like retro future especially that 80s flavored one where like it looks very much like an alternate future that could exist in some Mm -hmm. weird way and i love how they integrated that whole look into basically everything like everything was very dirty and gritty looking and old but like somehow really techie future It, it really does harken back like you say to like this whole era of animation where it felt like the wild west where like you had to really figure out how if you wanted something to look exactly right like you had to figure out just how to do it. Like the part where they're like walking around in the fog near the end. They were talking about how they not only used like airbrushes but they actually blew cigarette smoke into the camera over <laughs> and over and over again to get that effect. <laughs> God, I just, I just really love re-watching this movie because there, there's something about cell animated movie that you just cannot replicate. There's a warmth there, there's a grittiness there, but at the same time, there's also vibrancy and you cannot replicate it with any kind of computer. And I miss that look sometimes. Like I really, really do. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like it. There really isn't.
3: We love the shot of Angel when Mach first sees her and they overexposed her hair and put a fog filter in front of the camera.
2: Yeah, to make her look all glowy. That shot rules. I also love the club scene when they go into the club and they used hmm. like a bunch of different gel colors to make that weird like strobe effect Cindy describes the club as like a zero gravity club so hmm. they were trying to get this effect of like everything looking like floaty and weightless so you'd have like people just kind of swarming around all willy nilly and these weird stroby lights. I will say if you are photosensitive this movie probably is going to drive you insane.
0: (laughs) Uh, This movie kills epileptics. Yeah.
2: If you have any kind of sensitivity, then I would not recommend this movie at all because there's a lot of flashing lights. There's a lot of swirly colors. It's a lot.
0: No, absolutely. I think the the photosensitivity issues are are definitely present, but but as a whole, like again, like it really captures a magical kind of energy. Magical, I love as a descriptor. I use it way too much. So. <laughs> Basically, my rebuttal is going to end up just being my thoughts. So I'm just going to dive in uh, with right at the start. What might be my hottest take of this episode? Uh, rock and Roll is the best looking North American animated feature of the 1980s. There we go. I, I love the Bluth stuff. The the Bluth stuff is great, and even the Disney Renaissance. You know, Little Mermaid. I don't think that they have the level of compositional skill or layout that's displayed in this film. Like, the the storyboards, there's a level of depth here to characters moving in and out of space that's so massively impressive. Because I I knew people who thought, oh, this whole movie's rotoscoped. There's one sequence in this film that uses considerable photo reference, and that's the the opening scene with Omar and company Mm -hmm. uh, performing. And that's it.
2: Yeah, everything else is just animated from animators doing their thing.
0: Yeah, from from reference or what have you, and it looks so smooth. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, don't get me wrong, I get it. Like, sort of the the mutations, in this case, from the original Drats designs might be a bit unappealing. But I like them. I think they're good. Uh, And I think you're wrong if you think otherwise, dummy. Uh, Stupid. (laughs) Stop listening to this podcast. Get a life. Get some taste, jerk.
2: I stand firm in my belief that even people like us who wouldn't identify as furries, per se, there is Hmm. a tiny piece in all of us that, for the right character, we would go furry. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, yeah.
2: And I think Angel is one of them. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. Damn. Anyone who says otherwise is coward. Yeah,
2: you're just lying to yourself.
0: No, I thought we were talking about Zip. Um, <laughs> Oh, Zip. he In the alternate cut, he does survive. It's true. The, one of the mm-hmm. few good changes in that, in the <laughs> that original version, in that weird insert shot um, that they clearly just slammed in there because they didn't have animation done for it. But no, I think it's uh, visually spectacular, top to bottom, uh, from design to animation to photographic effects. Uh, rock and Roll conjures a really unique world, oozing with personality, uh, the complicated and lively overheads of Omtown, Town, uh, Max's Ma- palatial estate and his airship. The open rocky vistas the, on the trip to New York which are a small thing, but I love them. It feels like there's a real like bombed out hellhole world that exists outside of these urban areas, but they also look so pretty.
2: They Um, do. They
0: look really gorgeous.
2: If you listen to the commentary, they had such a hard time with like the the camera work in some of those Mm -hmm. shots. They're really complicated if you look at them, which is wild for just like a driving sequence.
0: Yeah, exactly. What is essentially just getting us from point A to point B, but they they didn't want it to just feel perfunctory. Uh, The animation, by and large, spectacular. Uh, A lot of wonderfully detailed, subtle character animation in the more realistic forms of Omar and Angel. uh, In ways that uh, lend them a real naturalistic quality, uh, while never shifting away from exaggeration. Uh, Mock. Mock's animation is so fluid, particularly those lips. Those lips will be recycled in uh, in one of the first episodes of Droids. Um, There's a villain that has just the exact same lip style, and it feels weird because he's like a portly man. Uh, they, they don't really fit the character, but I can see why they would want to, like, reuse that particular design, because they just, they're lips with a lot of character. They're, like, if lips could kill, those ones could, like, <laughs> slice through you. Yeah, they're so sharp. <laughs>
2: <laughs> those Mick Jagger lips.
0: <laughs> the looks of casual disgust, like, there's a lot of subtle character acting in, in him, too, where he's, like, like you can see his cool constantly on the verge of breaking. Is <laughs> uh, really good. Like Like, when he just gives, like, a look of, like, utter hatred towards Omar before, like, laughing at him and then of course the Schlepper brothers Cindy dizzy uh stretch wonderfully cartoony and exaggerated characters uh, really perfect comic relief they they lend themselves so well to the bits
2: I love Cindy Cindy's so good
0: yeah, th- even mylar mylar's fun like all the, all the cartoony characters are rendered wonderfully uh, the demon of course the big one uh which you know we mentioned the cow brains apparently they would it would literally simmer on the glass uh, which is so fun
2: I can only imagine how bad that must have smelled.
0: Uh, Shoutouts to uh, Chuck Gamage, who was primarily the designer for that, and Tom Seto, legendary animator on uh, Little Mermaid, who framed Roger Rabbit, etc., etc., countless other titles. But I think the, the demon in particular is so great because it's like the perfect combination of everything the art department with the, the final rendering, it's the animation department and design department creating it. I mean, that fluid animation, the noises it even makes in the sound department, uh, the texturing and the the colored gels used for that texture. And the, the multiplane rig, the way they got that jiggling effect was because they could just program micro movements with the camera to make it move slightly. I, I think that that character in particular is just this incredible culmination of all the film's visual strengths. And that's so cool that you have something that's like all the best parts of this really incredible film together. But that is time. Uh, I'm going to call it here for us to just go right into our final thoughts. Tim, final thoughts on the film.
1: If I have kids someday, I'm gonna show them this movie and I'm gonna tell them it's a goofy movie.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Austin, go.
3: Uh, you're probably never going to find a North American cartoon that is this obscure while simultaneously looking this good. It's the Thief and the Cobbler for cool kids. And even though it's a huge mess, I can't help but recommend it because there's almost nothing like it. Go check it out. However you have to do that.
0: Uh, hopefully we've another release. Oui. Dawn, final thoughts on the picture?
2: I think I was probably pre-ordained to like this movie as someone who likes another movie where a song saves the day. <laughs> Macross, do you remember, love? But I just, I love this weird-ass movie. I love it when people discover it. I really do hope it comes back in print someday and you don't have to track down some bootleg copy to watch it, but that's kind of how the movie got its cult sort of following. So in a way it's kind of carrying on that legacy <laughs> into the future. But I do agree. I do hope that eventually someone will pick this movie back up because I think over the past 10, 15 years, it has only gotten more popular with animation fans and cult movie people. Uh, if you haven't watched it uh, and you love animation as a form of art, as a genre uh, on the whole, you definitely owe it to yourself to give it a watch because it is just really weird and fun and cool.
0: Absolutely My final thoughts uh, It's an absolutely fabuloso picture <laughs> a Delightful exercise In uh, pushing aesthetic boundaries uh, Full of great gags Mostly excellent tunes And simple yet extremely fun characters uh, My gerbil uses it for a room divider uh, But you know what else my gerbil uses for a room divider? Ooh. You! The viewer watching slash listening To this episode of Bomb Squad Movie Night Before I get into the usual spiel I would like to first thank Dawn so much For joining us. Uh, As always, you were a delight to have, uh, and we'd love to have you back in the future. Oh, thank you. Be sure to check the description of this upload for uh, links to all of Don's projects, social media, uh, buy yourself a t-shirt, and just check out all that great stuff. And while you're there, be sure to give us a like, subscribe if you haven't already, and leave a comment below. Share a favorite quote, animated moment, another great movie heartlessly left to rot by a disinterested distributor, or similarly goofy movie-adjacent piece of media. Uh, If you're listening on one of the podcast platforms, be sure to leave a like, rate five stars, post up a comment, etc. and be sure to check out the spot. Modify video version of this recording if you'd like to experience the uncensored Canadian cut. Uh, <laughs> we also have a Patreon as all good online media discussion things do, so feel free to leave us some change there if you have a chance. Uh, and be sure to tune in for the next episode of Bomb Squad Movie Nights, where we discuss a film where a young man discovers a conspiracy that his life is a lie and he lives in a domed society as we discuss Megazone 2-3 Part 2. Nope, we discuss <laughs> The Truman Show uh, hosted by Tanner.
2: Ah, uh, uh, damn, you had me so... excited there for a second. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs)
0: so until next week boys and girls goodbye and be good (laughs) farewell dick nose (laughs) we're into that kind of stuff it's all we ever do